Well, hello and welcome to our Saturday episode of our Advent podcast, Tidings of Comfort and Joy. And over Advent, I'm going to be serialising a new short story for Advent. So pick up your coffee, sit back and enjoy. Chapter one. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. She had had her fill of shopping more than an hour ago. Now she stood outside on the pavement, staring blankly at the shop window. A few spots of rain were beginning to fall, and the pushing of the crowds had exhausted her, but still she would not be going inside. The bright displays in the windows could not work their spell. Her feet hurt, and she just wanted to go home. David had said he would meet her here at five, and it was already 5.17. That meant he had been holed up in the solicitor's opposite for just short of an hour and a half. How long could this really take, she wondered. As she resisted the urge to check her watch again, she felt a hand upon her shoulder. Sorry, love, he said. Turning to look at him, She was struck by how tired and weary he looked, as tired and weary as she felt. That's fine. Let's just go and find Emily and get home. She dreaded how that meeting would go. The inevitable argument, the sullen silence on the drive home, the slamming of doors. Her head began to throb in anticipation. Janie, we can't go home yet. I need to talk to you. We need to talk together and without Emily. It wasn't as simple as I thought. Indeed, things were not as simple as David Harrison had thought they might be. He entered the solicitors expecting to be told his aunt, his nutty aunt who wore woolen stockings in summer, his crazy aunt who always rode a bicycle with a basket but never learnt to drive a car, had left him a few thousand in her will. That was what he expected. But things were far from that simple, how he wished they were. A few thousand would have been a blessed relief at the moment. A 15-year-old daughter who seemed to think black was the only colour in the rainbow. A wife who seemed to grow more sad and distant by the day. Yes, a few thousand might just have been a ray of light to pierce the gloom. And yet here he was, sat across from his wife in a coffee shop with steamed up windows trying to explain how things were anything but simple. A chalet, she asked. Yes, in the Swiss Alps. Yes, and we have to move there. No, well, yes, but only temporarily, only until Christmas. After that, we're free to do with it what we want. We can even sell it. The solicitor said it's likely to be worth hundreds of thousands, maybe more than a million. But to have it, we have to move in before Advent. Janie momentarily stopped turning her cup on its saucer and looked at him. And what exactly is Advent? David looked at her. Neither of them were religiously inclined. In fact, they shared a common dislike of religious hypocrisy. And so his heart had that sinking feeling that what he was about to say would not be well received. I didn't know what it meant either, he said quietly. I had to ask the solicitor. 
Keeping his eyes on her face, he continued. Apparently it means coming. It's the four weeks before Christmas when the church celebrates the coming of Christ. For the chalet to be ours, we need to move in by the first day of Advent. He could see her face tighten. Great, David, she said quietly. We have a daughter who won't speak to us. Your job is anything but secure. And now we have to move to some mountain in Switzerland. She paused, and David knew better than to fill the silence. When is the first day of Advent anyway? He drew in his breath, failing to do so as discreetly as he had hoped. It's this coming Sunday. If we want the chalet, we have to be there by Sunday. We have three days, Janie. He lifted his eyes and looked into hers. He saw what he had seen so many times before in their recent past. An emptiness and a resignation that made his heart ache with longing. A longing to put it all right. He took her hand across the table. Janie, I think we should do this. And I think we can do this. Chapter 2 Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light. Mathieu took his usual seat on the post bus right at the back. The boys always sat at the back. The idea was that when the bus took the mountain turns and there were 17 of them to the one stop in their village, they got a better swing experience. At least that was what they thought when they were young, when they still enjoyed the leisured life of École Primaire. Now they were not so easily impressed, but it still hadn't changed their seating habits. For one, the girls still took the front seats, which meant it was easier to launch the occasional missile or fire the odd Nerf gun from behind. And for two, if the swing was no longer much to speak of, the view down into the valley below was. Besides, any kind of change was slow in the valley, and where you sat in the car postal was no different. In the gathering dusk of the late afternoon, Mathieu sat alone, his two friends, of which he made the third of their little group, had taken the earlier bus, leaving Mathieu behind for his rock climbing class. At least there would have been climbing class if Monsieur Galzano had not cancelled it at the last minute. But with buses running from the central station to Mathieu's village once every hour, being told your class was cancelled three minutes after the bus departed was not much help. Rather, it committed you to a long and in winter cold wait. He had first seen the three foreigners asking directions at the gar. He knew immediately that they were foreigners and not because he had heard them speaking English. After all, there were enough English speakers along the lake and venture into some shops or onto the university campus and you heard very little but English. It was that they looked so, well, awkward. Awkward not just here in this town, looking like they didn't belong, but awkward with each other, as they stood just a little too far apart from each other, as if neither one of them dared invade the space of another. Sure, they were together, that much was obvious. And yet they seemed so untogether. 
Matcha tried not to stare, but to be honest, it was hard not to. Just watching the girl he took to be the couple's daughter was painful. If unseen walls separated the two of them, it looked as if she had dug a moat, put up a battlement and drawn up the drawbridge. So awkward was the word. Awkward here in town and awkward with each other. But there was something else. Sad, that was it. They weren't just awkward, they looked sad with a kind of sadness Matcha could almost feel from where he sat watching them. Now, it wasn't that Matcha was unused to foreigners. It was that they were so very unlike the foreigners that usually pitched up here. After all, ski season was still a month away and the usual foreigners that descended in the winter months stood out for very different reasons. They were loud, confident, brash and at times annoying calling out to one another across the street in their plummy English or American twang, accents that even Matthew and the boys could distinguish, strutting in their designer ski wear. But not these three. Matthew doubted that they had ever placed their foot on a ski, and certainly not her. When it came to awkwardness and sadness, she was in a class all her own. And let's face it, he thought, still trying not to dissect their every appearance and move, but not really succeeding. Any teenage girl who wore only black round here was going to stand out. Looking at her through the window of the bus, he doubted that she even owned a decent warm ski jacket, not even a black one. Or if she did, she was strangely reluctant to get it out of the suitcase he had watched her drag behind her parents. And drag it was what he had seen her do in a way that screamed out, I don't want to be here. And now Mathieu watched her as she tried vainly not to shiver in the wind. Not that the wind was strong, of course. It didn't need to be any more than a knife needs to be strong. It just needs to be sharp and to cut. And the wind here in the valley could cut to the bone. Girls, Mathieu thought. Girls and fashion victims. They are their own worst enemies. But then he could not resist a smile as he thought of the Jourdain sisters, girls in his village. They were different. They were class. And so, having observed the foreigners while trying not to observe them, Mathieu was more than a little interested as he watched them climb into his bus. What could possibly bring them to his valley? Chapter 3 the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. David Harrison sat on the arm seat, trying not to hold too tightly to the chair in front of him as the post bus took each turn up the mountain. They should put grip bars in these things, he thought. It was as if with each swing of the bus, his stomach lurched to the opposite side of the road. His solicitor had told him that a Monsieur Roulet would meet them at the bus stop in the village. He had also told him that the name was pronounced Roulet, as in the French for chicken, poulet. He'd kindly accompanied this explanation with a chicken impression right there in the office an impression which included flapping wings, bobbing of head and a passable pluck, pluck, plucking. But David was dragged back to the present by another lurch of the bus. How did they hold the road? 
The cloud was low outside, obscuring any view of the mountains that the solicitor had said surrounded the area. But there was still sufficient light in the day to see that the snow was beginning to lay thicker on the ground. At the gar there had been none, just a biting wind. Now, as they took the hairpin bends, the snow had started to appear, first a smattering here and there, but now a consistent coverage and getting deeper with each turn. He turned to Janie, who sat in the window seat beside him. The snow's getting deeper, he said, pointing with his head towards the window. She didn't speak, but smiled weakly. Emily had not said a word since she had snatched her passport from her father's hand at passport control and snapped, I can carry my own passport, Dad. He looked across at her on the other side of the aisle, sat with her head turned and face pinned to the window. He doubted she was admiring the view. Where had his little girl gone? What had happened? What thief had come and stolen her from him? The bus stopped at every village on the way up. A grand total of three older ladies, each carrying their shopping bags, had got off along the way, but no one had got on since the gar. He guessed there was nowhere to go to other than the village to which they were headed, which his solicitor, him of the chicken impression, had told him was the last stop where the bus would turn around and head back down the mountain. He had told him that to reassure him that he could not miss the stop. And now, as darkness fell, he was glad that was the case. How you could distinguish the villages they stopped at, he had no idea. You'd have to be a local to have any idea where to get off. Occasionally, what he took to be the name of a stop would flash on a screen at the front, but it seemed to bear no relationship to when they were actually at a stop. They were now the sole occupants of the bus. Them and a young man sat at the back. When David had turned around at the last stop to watch the last old lady get off, he had caught the young man looking at him. Rather than look away, the boy had smiled at him, not in a, I'm the mad man on the bus you don't want to sit next to kind of way, but in a way that David found slightly unnerving, precisely because it looked kind. And to his surprise, he had found it was he who looked away. And then as the bus began to slow down and the driver called out one more unintelligible sentence from the front, David became aware of the young man standing beside his elbow. This is the last stop, he said, in clear, if slightly accented English. I think you must be getting off here, like me. And with that, the bus did a large swing in the road, and David could see in the streetlights that they were in a car park or turning area, and came to a stop. The doors opened automatically, and in rushed a sudden blast of cold air. Can I help you with your bag, sir? The snow is a bit slidey. David looked up at him as he pulled himself to standing. The fact that he spoke English, even if it was with an accent, had caught David by surprise, and he couldn't help but be impressed, not least because his own French consisted of little more than où sont les toilettes. And the young man even looked like something out of the sound of music, David thought. Not that he was wearing lederhosen or anything, but he was blonde and sort of fresh-looking. Back home, if a boy that age had been standing behind him on the bus, David would be watching his back pocket. But here, even in an unknown village in the dark of early evening, David felt that fear unwarranted. Thank you, he said as he looked at him. That would be great. Mathieu reached for one of the suitcases they'd left in the open section by the central door and lowered it to the ground outside as David did the same with a second. 
Then Mathieu reached back for the third, watched all the time by these three foreigners who had come to his village and now stood standing in the doorway of his post bus. He stepped down into the compacted snow outside and turned to face them. May I help you out? He said to Janie, reaching up his right hand. It's a little bit of a step. Thank you, she said, taking his outstretched hand. And for the first time in a long time, David could see her smile. Not a weak smile of resignation that David knew too well, but a real smile at the boy from The Sound of Music. Maybe this will be okay, David thought. But as Janie stepped gingerly down into the snow, any fuzzy thought that all would be well evaporated as a breath in the cold of the evening. For as Mathieu released her hand and turned to offer it to Emily, Emily quite deliberately stepped down unaided, and having done so, she turned her back on Janie and Mathieu and looked into the dark of the valley that fell away beneath the village. As David stood on the bus a feet or two above them, he knew that it was as clear a way of saying, you're not helping me, no one's helping me, as if Emily had said the words. As Mathieu looked at her, David eased himself down. Thank you for your help, he said, touching his shoulder briefly to get his attention. What's your name? My name is Mathieu, Mathieu Weber. Thank you, Mathieu. Can I ask you why you have come to our village? Normally we don't get visitors up here at this time of year. My aunt had a house here. We've come to see it. I'm expecting to meet a Monsieur Roulet. He considered doing his solicitor's chicken impression, but just as he was about to make the wings, he thought better of it. Ah, I see. And turning to where he expected Monsieur Roulet to appear, Mathieu was not disappointed as a slightly stooped man turned the corner of the street that ran just above the car park where they stood. In the light of the street lamp, they watched him begin descending the six steps that led from the street to the car park, holding the handrail as he came. He is never late, said Mathieu. This is Monsieur Roulet. And as David watched him descend the steps with his head bobbing, David thought just how much like a chicken he looked. Well, listen in next Saturday for part two. Our piece of music for this day of Advent is a new song by Sovereign Grace, which we're going to sing tomorrow at church. It's called Come All You Unfaithful.